I am <clears throat> always somewhat overwhelmed to stand in this place. Uh, I tell people I, 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 that I don't preach. I just get up here and speak. So I hope that what I say will, will meet your needs this morning. Um, thank you for that song, Gary. It's kind of interesting that you're talking about a little shepherd boy. We're going to be talking about a little children's song this morning. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. How many of you know that song? How many, of you, how many can, remember, can you remember not knowing that song? I cannot remember a time when I did not know the words to that first verse anyway. And uh, a few weeks ago, for some reason, that this song, either I heard it or I'm, I'm not sure when, but, but anyway, it all of a sudden struck me that there are some profound truths in this one little verse. And the more I thought about it, 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 it just, just amazed me. And that's what I'd like for us to talk about today. If you go to the next slide. Here, the author of this, and I didn't know this, uh, the author of this song is Anna Bartlett, Bartlett Garner. Uh, she wrote the poem, and it was included in a, in a book that sh- her sister was writing uh, back in 1860. And the interesting thing, these two ladies lived up in... Um, uh, Constitution Island up in New York. It's where the U.S. Military Academy is located. They lived there, and they wrote this song. And interesting is they're the only two civilians that are buried on the U.S. Military Academy. All the rest of them are military people, which is kind of an interesting little tidbit. But it's, uh, they wrote the song, then a couple of years later, this William Bradbury wrote the tune, then added the little chorus, or the refrain or the, uh, to the song. To me, it's real interesting, first of all, that it was written in 1860. What was happening in the U.S. in 1860? We were getting right in the middle of the Civil War. There was a lot of unrest in, this, in our nation at that time. And it's interesting, if you look at a lot of different areas, this was a time in the 1860s when a lot of things happened beyond that war. I think it made people concentrate and, uh, 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 on what was going on. The other thing I thought was real interesting, that it was written as a comforting poem to a dying child. Now, that really makes these words start to become much more poignant that she wrote this uh, for a dying child. And particularly, you, you may not un- uh, realize it, but that, that little song's got four verses. We always just sing the first verse, but it does have four verses. The, the third verse, I think, when you think of it as written for a dying child, is really poignant. It says, Jesus loves me, loves me still, though I am very weak and ill, from the, his shining throne on high, come to watch me where I lie. That takes on a little different meaning when you think of it being written to a, a dying child. So this, this beautiful song uh, uh, was, was penned and it's become a Christian favorite for we as always as children have learned it. Okay, next slide. So what I want us to do this morning is look at four truths that in this that are that are comes out in this very first verse. Uh, the first truth is profound. Jesus loves me. Now, if we took this whole Bible and needed to summarize it in three words, that'd be a pretty good summary of it, wouldn't it, Danny? Jesus loves me. But you might say, wait a second. Jesus doesn't occur back there in the Old Testament. Well, you're right. His name doesn't occur there, but Jesus is there. 
He's there, first of all, in prophecy such as this, as you see here in Isaiah 9, 6, for unto us a child is born to us, a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This is prophecy pointing toward the birth of Jesus. Now, one kind of a little side, another little sidelight on this particular verse, notice that Everlasting Father. The word Father is capitalized there. If you look, at least in the NIV version, throughout the Old Testament, that's the only time that the word Father is capitalized in all of the Old Testament. And interesting, it's not really referring to God the Father, it's referring there to God the Son. Take, take that for what it's worth. Now, the other part of that is, and that's a different uh, uh, message, but the other part, if you look in the New Testament, about half the time the, the word Father occurs, it's capitalized. And it tells us that God has become our Father through Jesus Christ in the New Testament. Well, anyway, uh, so Jesus in, is in the Old Testament. He's there through prophecy, this one verse, and there's Micah, and there's many other places that we see Scripture. We also see him there in a cryptic version. We've seen this in the last few weeks uh, in our study of Daniel. And in Daniel, if you remember, uh, uh, there's, uh, when the th- Daniel's three friends went into the fiery furnace, there was a fourth person. The, when Nebuchadnezzar looked in there, there was a fourth person there. Most scholars believe that fourth person was Jesus. Also, uh, last Wednesday night, we studied about uh, Daniel interpreting Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And in that dream, there is a rock not made by hands. And again, most, most scholars think that rock is Jesus. And you can go many other places that Jesus is in the Old, Test- is in the Old Testament. So, and then, then finally, the evidence that Jesus is in the Old Testament is Jesus' own word. Here in uh, John 10.30, he says, I and my Father are one. He says he is God. He is Father. So when we, say, when we sing, Jesus loves me, in a more broad sense, this, uh, we're singing, God loves me. Now, what does it mean that God loves me? Let's look at those three words. First of all, how big is God? How big is God? Well, we know that God is bigger than the universe. He created the universe, so he has to be bigger than the universe. How big is the uh, universe? I got this off of some internet. It says that they, they estimate now that the region visible from Earth, that the uh, universe is a sphere. It's about 46 billion light years. Now, that doesn't sound too big, but how big is a light year? A light year is the, the distance that a ray of light would travel in a year's time. Now, I know all of these high school kids can tell me the speed of light. The speed of light, the light travels at 186,000 miles per second. Now, how many seconds are there in a year? There are about 5 million and something, I think I calculated, seconds in a year. So you multiply those together, then one light year is 5.86 times 10 to the 12th miles. Now, if I got all my zeros right, that's about 6 trillion miles. About the only thing we can compare to six trillion that I can is our national debt. Uh, that, that, that's another sermon. Now, let's not go there this morning. You know, that's, that's how far, that's one light year. What about 46 billion light years? Now, my calculator wouldn't calculate that. It, it ran out of too many zeros. But if you multiply 46 billion times 5.86, or almost six trillion, it's 270, then you put 21 zeros back behind there. 
Now, is that how big the universe is? I think the real, the real identification of the universe is, is that it's infinite. And that blows my brain. I cannot understand infinite. I, I can't understand those big numbers, but I surely can't understand when, when we can't put a number to it. How big is God? He is infinite. He is beyond what we can, can imagine. Now, how small is me? I don't know if that's right English or not. But uh, how small is me? I started to put a, this big font, God, big font, and me is a little font. And I realized God would go off the screen. It wouldn't fit there, and you wouldn't be able to read me. So I, I didn't try that little exercise. But think of it. You know, the earth is just a little speck in this universe. You think of how big that universe is, how big the universe is, Earth is just one little speck in this universe. Kaiser, Arkansas is just a little speck on Earth. And then even if we live to be 100 years old, that is just a speck of time compared to eternity. So how big is God and how small are we? You know, but the amazing thing is that middle word. God connects to us. And how does he connect to us? <laughs> one word. He loves us. He loves us. John, uh, 1 John uh, 4, 8. Whoever does not, does not love does not know God because God is love. That's really the message this morning. God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his uh, one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. That's the same thing Jesus said in John 3.16. For God so loved the world, what? That he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. I have to quote King James. That's, that's NIV up there. But, you know, this is that, that God, he, he, the connection between God beyond our comprehension of how big he is and me is that he loves me. Now, that, we've heard that all our life, but that is marvelous, isn't it? He loves us. That makes us different. He, that makes him different from all other gods. You know, all the other gods start with a uh, small g. Uh, he's different in that I think one of the most beautiful things is that he initiates that love. He doesn't love us because we loved him. We don't have to go love him first. He loves us because I'm not sure why he loves us. He loves We don't earn his love. He initiates. He reaches down from heaven. He reaches down from the universe and reaches down and touches us and loves us. Secondly, it's much so different from other gods, the, the non-capitalized gods, is that our God is alive. He's not this cold, uncaring, unemotional object. And if you look at a, a lot of the false gods, they're always wanting appeasement. They're wanting uh, um, animal, uh, different kind of sacrifices human sacrifice, that you have to do these things in order to earn this love. We don't earn God's love. He gives it to us. 
But in terms of when we start realizing who he is and who we are, our response to his love should be that we give him love back. So, uh, that's the first truth. The second truth, little ones to him belong. Uh, Probably anytime you you think of this uh, part of the verse, you think of this uh, picture something like this that is from that's based on Mark uh, ten fourteen is these little children coming to him Mark ten thirteen through sixteen says and they were and they were bringing children to him that they that he might touch them now they being uh, these parents the the crowd in there they were bringing their little children they had seen Jesus performing miracles and they wanted this great person. They recognized Jesus as a miracle giver, and they wanted him to just touch their child. They knew their child would be better by his touch. That's pretty neat in itself, isn't it? Are we better with Jesus' touch today? Absolutely. They were praying that, that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. Why would it? Jesus' disciples, he said, they, you would think, come on, everybody, y'all come here. We try to get all these crowds here. And they rebuked them for bringing these little children uh, to come to Jesus. They rebuked them because they didn't see Jesus in that fashion. They saw Jesus as their, their leader, not to stoop down to little children, but I love that when Jesus saw this, he was indignant. It's not very often we see Jesus as being indignant. I can even hardly say it. Uh, I always think of when he was uh, uh, addressing the Pharisees, and he would call them out as hypocrites. He was being pretty indig- indignant to them, and rightfully so. But he's, uh, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to, hi- to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child does not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. What a beautiful, I love that last part. Yeah, he, he said, let them come to me, and then he took them into the arms. In Scripture, we don't have a lot of evidence of Jesus and children. We don't have, you know, there's not a lot of recorded, but I would, I sincerely believe that he was a magnet to children. And the reason he was a magnet to children because of his, his strong, gentle nature. And he would open himself up and these children would come to him. What a, what a beautiful picture then of him coming to him. Well, obviously uh, this part of the verse refers to Jesus relating to small children. But guess what? He said in that verse 15 that we are to come to him as small children. But also, over in Matthew 1 through 4, it says, At that time the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who is the greatest uh, in the kingdom of heaven? Isn't that amazing? These disciples, these close associates of Jesus that were with him and hearing him teach every day, and what they have in mind? Who's going to be greatest? I'm, I'm... I may not be perfect, but I'm better than old Peter over there. Who's going to be greatest in the kingdom of heaven? What do you think Jesus thought when he asked them that? I think it broke his heart. How can you... How, you know, I think he was thinking, you don't understand. How can you ask that kind of question? I've had students ask me questions sometimes that just bow me over because... 
you, there's no way, that's not a logical question to ask. You, you know, you have really messed up. Rick, I don't think you've ever, you probably never had students do that to you, but, uh, you know, that when, when they ask a question that doesn't stand to reason, then you know something hadn't connected anywhere along there, has it? And so uh, he, he says, uh, and then he called a little child. He, he, had a, he wanted to give a, a uh, picture of what he was saying. He called this little child up to him and says, I tell you the truth, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. This is the way all of us come to, to, to Jesus. We don't come to it on our terms. We don't come to him as adults. We have to give up ourselves. We have to take on this innocence that it's like a small child. We, we, and, you know, it, it amazes me, a, a, a small baby. They can't even turn over. They're dependent on that mother, their father, to take care of them. That's how we're to, to come to crisis. We, we get rid of all this stuff. We, we turn it loose, and we, we turn ourselves over to him. We surrender. We give ourselves up, and we quit being, trying to be self-sufficient. Why is that so hard for us as humans to, get, to, to give up how small we are? How is it, why is it so hard for us to give up our little bitty selves and simply to give ourselves to this huge God? I don't have an answer for that, but, it is, but that, that's a very common thing. Okay, let's look at an illustration. Uh, oh, uh, I about skipped one here. Um, little ones... Oh, okay, next slide. I, I, I got confused there. I need to give you an illustration of God's love. also need to show you a picture of my grandchild, my grandson. <laughs> That's a sneaky way of getting it in here, isn't it? Uh, about two years ago, I became a grandfather for the first time. Now, there's, over these last couple of years, I've learned there's some stages of love. And for any of you that have children and grandchildren, you understand what love is when you start relating to your children. The first stage was that I became aware he exists. Our son and daughter-in-law told us that they were going to have a baby. I started loving that child right then. Rather in an abstract way. I mean, it's, you know, I I couldn't touch or feel or, you know, it it was a concept in a sense. But I had had love and concern for that child immediately. That really jumped up a few months later when we saw a sonogram. I hope I spelled that right. I saw this image. We, we saw him. There was life there. That life was moving. And I, can't, I, I will never forget, I had tears in my eyes. And as, as a side message, how can anybody abort a live child? That is, once they see a sonogram, that's, that's beyond my comprehension. Uh, that is a person. My love, I, I could see him, and there, my, that abstract being took on a concrete substance. That, that, and we knew it was a little boy. That didn't make any difference, but that, it, you know, he took on a substance that I could identify with. The third stage is when he was born. Now, I went from being able to just see this image of him, I could put him in my hands. I could touch him. Wow. That is something special. That first time you hold that little child, 
the love uh, is amazing. We had that same experience when we adopted our son. He was three days old when we adopted him. We drove, we were living in Mississippi, we drove down to Jackson in order to get him. Uh, we knew three hours in advance. That how, that's how long our uh, pregnancy lasts. And we were three hours, and we went down. As soon as we touched him, as we were driving back, it occurred to me, I love that little baby more than any baby, any, uh, anybody else. Love is instant with that touch. The fourth stage as when he starts, started acknowledging, and that's what this, this is a selfie, by the way, that I took. It's the reason it's not a real good picture. Uh, he is in my lap, and I put the little camera out there, and he, well, first of all, he came to my lap. He acknowledged who I was, and, he, and when I did that, he responded my love. About a week or so ago, I was sitting on their sofa, and First time he's done this, he comes in, he sees me, and he puts his up his arms and comes over to him. Wow, that is special. He has gotten to the point now that he acknowledges who I am and he responds to my love. Now, I said this was an illustration. Is this the same thing that God goes through? Absolutely. Let me read Psalm. I don't have it up on the board, uh, uh, on the screen. Let me read a uh, favorite so, uh, verse of mine. Psalms 139, 13 through 16. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came about, came to be. God knew us before we even were pregnant. <laughs> he, he, from the beginning of time, he knows who we are. Once we start existing as a child, he takes on another step, I think, in that love and identifying with us. And to me, he, he, and one of the most marvelous, as this scripture indicates, that even when we're in that womb, he touches us. He doesn't have to wait till we're born. He's already touching us when, when we were in, in our mother's womb. But the most marvelous and I think greatest jump is when we start acknowledging him, when we accept him as our father, and then when we respond to his love. Just as I wowed by my little grandson when he acknowledges me, God is wowed when we acknowledge him. And that's what he wants from us. He doesn't want all the sacrifice and all. He just wants us to acknowledge who he is and to respond to that. So, truth two is the little ones come to him. Truth three, they are weak, but he is strong. Uh, they are weak. I think we can say we are weak, can't we? Uh, we've already identified that. We are, we are weak. We are weak physically. Uh, as I said, infant, when they're born, they can't even turn over. They're very weak. You know, as we get old, we we starting to find out we're kind of weak, aren't we? Uh, there's uh, arthritis, tendonitis, and all, I don't know other kinds of itises that happens when you start getting at a more advanced age. We are physically weak, but you know what? Even some of these big football players, they get a little injury, and all of a sudden they're weak. They can't do anything, even at their strongest point. That. We as humans are nothing 
in terms of physical strength besides God. We see this, and you look at the power involved in a storm. You see the power of nature. You see the, the, the massiveness of what God can do. We are, we are weak. We're weak uh, physically. We're weak emotionally. Uh, we're, mankind is affected by every little thing that goes in this world. Uh, I better not go into that too deeply. But there, there, there's all kinds of, we have emotional weakness. We have spiritual weakness. If we don't have Christ in our lives, we are spiritually dead. We are weak. But you know, there's a wonderful but there. But he is strong. We are weak, but he is strong. He's the creator. He's the sustainer of the universe. We're told that these are some three big words. He's omnipotent. That means he's all-powerful. All-powerful to the point that we can't even describe it. It, it. He's beyond our comprehension of what power is. He's omnipresent. That means he's present everywhere. Now, you and I can't be at two places at one time. Sometimes we try, but we just cannot do it. But God is everywhere at all times. Now, Bill, you can explain that to me, but I'll, I'll let you do it later. He's omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient. That means he's all-knowing. Now, one of the most marvelous things about God is that he is omniscient, omniscient. He is all-knowing. He knows me, and he still loves me, despite knowing me. Isn't that a little bit overwhelming when you think of it, that God knows you? God knows those thoughts. God knows those things you've done in secret. I, I hope I'm not the only one that's done that. You know, there's things that I really don't want, uh, when my mother was living, I didn't want her to know. Some things she didn't want to know. But, yeah. there's, but God knows us. And even though in our worst condition, He still loves us. He's still reaching out and wanting us to, to, to respond to Him. I love Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ which strengthens me. I'm weak. I'm getting weaker by the minute. But I am strong through Christ. He strengthened me. It's His strength that carries me each day. It's not my strength. It's not my ability. Now, uh, let's go to the next screen. Go to the fourth truth. This is one is a little bit out of order. How do we know all of this? How do we know these other three truths that I've indicated? How do we know that Jesus loves me, that little children belong to him, and that he is strong and we are weak? They said, well, the Bible tells me so. Now, technically, that's called a circular argument. The Bible is true because the Bible tells us it's true. That, that won't hold up in a court. That's called a circular argument. So, how do we know that the Bible is true? And these are some things that I've listed out. That, uh, that, uh, so how do we know that the Bible is true? First of all, there's archaeological evidences. There have been discoveries, have been confirmed, uh, that many of the key locations and events in the Bible have been discovered through archaeological digs. They have archaeological evidence. The interesting thing about it is all of these, these explorations, none have ever disproven anything in the scripture. And the marvelous thing is usually when they make new discoveries, we go back and look at scriptures. Oh yeah, that's what that means. 
we have a clear understanding of the meaning of the scripture in the first place. They do not disprove it. So we have this wonderful archaeological evidence. Secondly is the number and the accuracy of manuscripts. It's, they said there's been over 5,000 manuscripts of the Greek New Testament found. And very few, uh, very few of them have discrepancies. Some of them, some of the older ones got transcribed a little bit different. And we'll, you'll see evidence of that in your word where that, in, uh, in some of the footnotes. But it's very un, uncommon that that happens. In 1947, Dead Sea Scrolls were found. And the book of Isaiah was there written in 100 B.C., they found this scroll in 1947 that had been uh, uh, gone, been out of circulation, and it was the, our our translations today were word for word, almost exact. Now, why would why would these manuscripts maintain? Could they be maintained all those years? One is the copy procedure. Uh, when when they were making hand copies of of the Bible, if they made one little Mistake. They didn't have an eraser. They didn't have the delete button on their computer. They would simply tear that manuscript up and start all over. So they were very careful in transcribing the scripture. But I think the main reason we have such an accurate uh, version of the Bible is that God oversaw that. He, he wanted to make sure that his word was still available to us today. A third, third reason that uh, we know that the Bible is true is fulfilled uh, prophecy. You can look in the Old Testament and see these prophecies that ended up being uh, coming about in the New Testament. What's interesting now, as uh, to me, is the book of Revelation has a, is much easier to understand today than it was 10 and 15 years ago because we're seeing more and more prophecy come about. Things become, are becoming much more evident simply because of those prophecies that, uh, that, that uh, we see. A fourth reason is, is the coordination of Scripture. This, uh, the Scripture was written over many years by many different authors, and other than just a, a little bit of uh, variation in their pers- uh, perspective as they wrote it, you don't see uh, any conflicts in what they wrote. God was over all of of that scripture, and that coordination of that scripture validates the scripture. A fifth reason is the impact on humanity. No other book has had this kind of effect on mankind as the Bible has. But yet, what have we done in our schools today? We've taken the Bible out of our schools. And a a recent survey I saw that many of our, uh, in the U.S., many children do not know who Jesus is don't even know the name of Jesus. And part of that is that we've taken the Bible out of our, our, out of our uh, schools. The last and the one that you cannot argue with is the impact it has on me, the impact it has on you. Scripture impacts us. God speaks through his scripture to us. His scripture is alive and therefore it is true. Now, uh, recently I read a book, uh, Carolyn Weber. I heard an interview of her on Focus on the Family, and she's written this book, and I thought uh, it was very interesting. She was a young, she's a young lady from Canada, very bright young lady. She finished uh, undergraduate and got an Oxford scholarship. Now, this is not Oxford, Mississippi. This is the real Oxford uh, over in England, and went over to, to study classical literature. She had grown up in a Catholic family, but they had never gone to church. There was no exercise of their religion in their family. 
and she professed to be agnostic. She said, basically agnostic, it says, I don't think there's a God, but I'm not sure, and I don't care. That's kind of the bottom line of agnostic. She was engaged to marry, marry a young man that was atheist. An atheist saying, it will violently say there is no God. They ended up, uh, she ended up going to England, and there she uh, met a, a person that introduced her and challenged her regarding the Bible. She had never read it. In fact, she didn't even own a Bible. So she goes to the library, goes over in special collections, starts reading this Bible. And she, her immediate response is she is amazed. This wonderful piece of literature. Here she was a specialist in classical literature, and this literature she had never looked at. And it was the most amazing piece of literature of the, the, uh, talking about the history of Israel and how God. And she keeps reading, and she keeps reading, and she... All of a sudden, God starts speaking to her. And I think she goes through these steps. First of all, she, she sees the coordination of Scripture. She sees how Scripture has affected humans and then how, how it has affected her. She becomes a Christian by the word of the, uh, of the Bible. That's how we know it's true. Jesus loves me. Little ones, little ones are we. We belong to him. They, we are weak but he is strong. We know this because the Bible tells us that it's so, but also we know it because he lives in us. This morning, do you know that Jesus loves you? Is God real to you? Is Jesus real to you? Have you come to that point of giving up yourself and taking on him? Just like this little song says. I ask our counselors to come forward. We'll play some music. Although our pastor's not here, if you've not had this settled in your mind today, let this be the day of salvation.